Hi, everyone, and welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Today, you're going to hear from Charles T. Clark about his recent columns on ethnic studies and inmate deaths. We're also going to hear from Steve Breen, our editorial cartoonist, about his creative process. But first, the news. San Diego weather will be cool and mostly clear throughout President's Day weekend, according to the National Weather Service. Scattered showers might fall in the mountains and deserts on Saturday, but the rest of the region will be mostly sunny. Sunday will be clear, and Monday we'll see high clouds. The daytime high in San Diego will be 63 on Saturday and 64 on Sunday and Monday. The county's newest vaccination superstation opened Friday morning at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. On the same day, a missed shipment of the vaccine raised concerns about a short supply in the county. The UC San Diego Health Superstation at Petco Park will deliver no vaccinations Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and appointments there will be automatically rescheduled. The state also announced that beginning March 15th, vaccinations will be available to more people, including those 64 and younger with cancer, obesity, and other underlying conditions. Charles T. Clark was our political reporter before becoming a columnist in January. He now writes about how identity intersects with the news, and he also explores how the same facts can hold such different meanings for different people. And that theme came up in his writing this week. So, Charlie, you are a new columnist at the Union Tribune. Congratulations. Um, You had two columns this week, one about ethnic studies, the other about jail deaths. And I want to talk about both, but let's start with ethnic studies. To begin, what is the goal of ethnic studies and who is behind the push for it to be taught in California public schools? Right. So, you know, fundamentally, the goal of ethnic studies, well, I mean, there's a few different factors. Um, One, it's to foster a a more accurate understanding and more inclusive understanding of American history. Um, Oftentimes, our history textbooks like to leave out um, key components, um, particularly as it relates to ethnic minorities and religious minorities, um, either by overlooking their contributions or um, just intentionally kind of avoiding talking about kind of the the history of oppression that groups have faced in the American, uh, in the U.S. Um, So that's certainly one component of it. I mean, the other thing that I I heard quite a bit um, from ethnic studies professors and things is they've really been um, involved with this kind of movement to, to make it you know, more broadly taught in California schools is that it also, you know, helps foster empathy. Um, You know, in in particular, it gives white students a a better idea of how, you know, different groups, be it Black, you know, Asian, uh, Native American, uh, Arab American, just all these different groups, you know, give them a better understanding of the perspective that some of their their fellow students are living with. Um, And on the flip side of that, it also empowers minority students um, to really tap into their own history and share a bit more of their family stories and personal stories. Um, I, I know one example that I saw come up was, you know, uh, Mexican American students talking about the uh, Chicano led walkouts, um, you know, a few decades ago. Uh, and another one that I hear often is you think about um, Vietnamese Americans who, you know, a lot of them second generation whose parents fled, you know, uh, terror to get here in kind of that part of U.S. history that we're not as aware of. Um, or, you, you know, you look at something like Palestinian Americans. Um, and, and I think very much in the U.S. we don't often see the, the Palestinian perspective, you know, related to a lot of what's going on in the Middle East. Um, 
So it's a, it's a really interesting way to kind of give people a broader perspective of, of what's going on. And can you talk about the history a little bit? I mean, how did California first come to consider teaching this in public schools? Oh, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a storied uh, tale. Um, you know, I know there's ethnic studies professors and advocates who have been, they've been on this for decades, right? Um, so I, I don't want to gloss over what the work they've been putting on in on the ground. Um, now, for me, where I, I kind of entered the equation and where I, I think we're kind of at now is really kind of the push of the last five years or so, um, where you really saw this getting talked about in a different way. You saw legislators start getting involved. Um, you know, you saw a mandate come down that California uh, Department of Education has to develop a ethnic studies curriculum. And that's really the crux of where we're at today. And that was kind of what sparked my column is that We've gone through three drafts so far of an ethnic studies curriculum, all that have been uh, contentiously debated for various reasons, you know. Um, and, so, you know, now where we're at is next month, we're heading into what should be the adoption of the final draft of the curriculum um, at the end of March. And, and that's, that's kind of where we're at today with it. Yeah, again, it is in the news now. You wrote that the curriculum for high schools needs to be created by March 31st, but that process has been controversial. Uh, what are people concerned about? Right, so, and this was kind of the, the purpose of my column was separating a bit the, the good faith kind of critiques of the ethnic studies curriculum versus the bad faith critiques. So on the good faith side, you've, you've heard concerns raised uh, about the inclusivity uh, of certain groups. Um, traditionally, ethnic studies tends to fixate on kind of four groups that have been historically oppressed in America, um, African Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, uh, Native Americans slash indigenous people. They tend to be the four that traditionally, I think when many people think of ethnic studies, that's what they are thinking of. Um, but it's not exclusive to that. And historically, it hasn't necessarily been exclusive to that. Often Arab Americans are included. Um, one of the issues that came up in one of these drafts is that in the original curriculum had specific things for Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans. They were then removed in a different draft. And so there's a lot of different moving parts. That was one of the things that came up. Um, other times you get into things that I kind of, you know, the inclusivity thing, I think most groups that raise it, I know some Sikh Americans raised it, some Jewish Americans raised it. I think those are all arguments that probably should be interpreted as being in good faith. Um, on the other side of that, though, there's no denying that there's some bad actors who don't actually have an interest in truly developing an ethnic studies curriculum. Um, you know, I, I think the simplest analogy I'd make for our, our listeners is they can think of something like uh, Donald Trump's, you know, 1776 commission, right, where they really weren't interested in developing an accurate understanding of U.S. history. Instead, it was about pushing up, you know, propaganda and kind of this American exceptionalism thing. And I think that has trickled into the ethnic studies debate where you have some individual organizations and people, many of whom are pretty clever in that they try to present themselves as if they are experts in the field um, who aggressively are actually working against it. Um, so one of the groups that I didn't name by name intentionally because I didn't want to give them more airtime, um, but, but one of them that caught my eye was uh, a group that is actually like celebrating that they're associated with an organization 
that was at the forefront of upholding California's ban on affirmative action. Inherently, if you believe in banning affirmative action so aggressively that you're out there advocating for it, you probably don't have the historical appreciation of why it was needed. And therefore, you're probably not the right people to be weighing in on whether ethnic studies should be taught or how it should be taught. Um, so they fall into the realm of people I'd say are bad faith actors where they, they really, you know, if they start throwing out, oh, it's too politically correct or it's, you know, anti-American, it teaches, you know, they're critical of uh, critical race theory or uh, I think the one I saw that I'm like, this should tip you off instantly that a person's not to be taken seriously is if they say ethnic studies perpetuates the victim oppressor model. That's that's not a good faith argument. Um, in fact, that to me, that immediately sounds like someone who doesn't want to acknowledge the reality that this country is historically oppressed, just about everyone who is not a white man. Um, and that's kind of what I see a lot today. And, and unfortunately, they have managed to put on some pretty good political pressure to influence the process of how this curriculum has been developed. So how soon might we see this reach public schools? Um, will it be mandatory? What else should we know? So my understanding is it's not necessarily mandatory, um, which is something that got, I think, a bit confusing for people. And I know a few people emailed me thinking that it was mandatory. My understanding is that this is a model curriculum that high schools and jurisdictions across the state, if they so choose, can use to develop their own ethnic studies courses. At this point, I don't think it's mandated. I know there's talk of, you know, man, it may be mandated at this point at Cal State, you know, at the university level. Um, but as far as the high school level, the grade school level, I'm not aware of that, you know, being something that's being discussed as of yet or having being discussed in a way where it really has momentum as of yet. Okay, we'll be watching. Um, in your other column this week, you wrote about jail deaths. Can you can you give us some background? You know, why are people dying in county jails, and and how big is the problem? Right. So you know, we at the UT, in particular, uh, Jeff McDonald and Kelly Davis have done an exceptional job um, for several years documenting the issues in San Diego County jails. Um, you know, what they ultimately found in their Dying Behind Bars series is that we have one of the worst mortality rates um, compared to, you know, everyone of comparable size in the state, um, it, which was pretty telling. You know, we reached a point where I think it was for the span of 10 years, there was someone dying every month, um, which is a lot when you just think about it. And yes, San Diego County has a lot of people that they book into their jails, um, but still I, I think Personally, I find it a bit um, disturbing that we have people dying at that rate. Um, yeah, sorry, I lost the second part of your question there. Oh, no, uh, just, yeah, how big is the problem? I think you've explained it um, well. So so that Dying Behind Bars series, when it came out, um, Sheriff Bill Gore took issue with it, and you actually spoke to him for your column. What did he have to say about it? Yeah, so to be honest, I was surprised that he called me. Um, you know, frankly... I know that there has been some difficulty and he hasn't exactly engaged uh, Jeff McDonald and Kelly Davis who have been reporting on this. Um, you know, in our conversation, what he tried to convey to me is that his, his issue is he doesn't, I think he literally said, I would never describe their reporting as inaccurate. I just believe that a different methodology is more appropriate and that we're not as, you know, egregiously behind, you know, other jurisdictions as, 
that analysis would show. So his his main contention was that the methodology, even though it's the national, they used a national standard methodology um, that's practiced by I think the U.S. Bureau uh, of Prison Statistics. Um, he contended that because San Diego County books in so many other people, they have a different methodology they use with that they feel is more accurate. Now, what I thought was interesting was he was pretty adamant, though, um, that there is a problem, and he described it as a gigantic problem. Now, he did mention that it's not exclusive to San Diego County. This is a problem jailers across the U.S. are dealing with, um, but he did acknowledge it you know, in a way that I think really conveyed that he felt it was a severe problem, um, which is something I'm not sure people necessarily felt like they were getting from him, um, because in part you didn't hear from him as often, or just frankly his reaction to the Dying Behind Bars series. I think there's a lot of people, myself included, who kind of interpreted it as, okay, he's he's kind of in denial here about how bad it is. Um, but to his credit, they've also made a lot of efforts throughout the years. The the problem, frankly, is that we still have all these people dying, right? I mean, it's more than 150 people since 2009. Um, and I, I think there's, well, we'll get into that later. <laughs> has he has he said how he plans to address it? A bit. So, you know, one thing, you know, they, they've tried to implement different programs. They've tried to do, change their intake process. Um, they tried to expand mental health clinicians' hours. I mean, he, he literally did send me a three-page list of things they have done, um, in fairness to him. Uh, again, the problem is, though, that the problem persists, right? And not only that, it continues to get worse and worse. Um, now, going forward, he, he did sound a bit optimistic because I did ask him about, you know, what's next here, right? Even, you know, even if we say that our mortality data maybe is different than yours, there's still a lot of people dying and we have a problem, which he acknowledged. Um, and one thing that he kind of said is he's very excited about the new board of supervisors who have expressed uh, an interest in really funding uh, additional mental health clinicians and mental health nurses um, in county jails. He seemed pretty optimistic about that. He also made a comment to me and we didn't get to get into it as much was about, he thinks with adding those kind of staffers um, in significant numbers that they can really change the model of care that's delivered in county jails. Um, you know, one of the challenges, and I'm sure Kelly Davis and Jeff McDonald have spoken about this before as well, is that, you know, the county law enforcement is in many ways kind of our chief mental health service provider, or at least our front line for interacting with people with mental health issues, which is a big part of it. Um, I know earlier you kind of asked about, you know, just how big is this problem? And frankly, all the different ways people can die, you know, sometimes it's suicide, sometimes they're killed by inmates. Sometimes it does look like it's frankly incompetence by county staff, um, which was kind of the case that set me off writing about this uh, this week. In your column, you wrote, we have to be better than this. We have to demand more than this. What can the average person do about it? Right, so I think that the chief thing I think of um, is one, you know, the, the power of the citizenry is at the ballot box, right? So if you want to hold your county sheriff as an elected position, so he's certainly somebody you can hold accountable, um, but also, frankly, your county supervisors, right? They oversee the county budget, which includes the sheriff department budget. If they really wanted to, 
to me, that's your way in to apply pressure to kind of force certain exchanges. Um, and as a citizen, I would think that if this is an issue you are passionate about, you should reach out to whoever your county supervisor is and really convey that this is an important issue that you want them to prioritize. Um, I, I think that's probably the, the best way to do it. I mean, also there are many, many, you know, organizations and people who have been far more involved in this issue than me and advocates who've been on the front line of this stuff for years and years. Um, and they're great people to reach out to as well. In journalism these days, it's rare to have a full-time editorial cartoonist on staff, and we're super fortunate to have Steve Green. Steve has won Pulitzers for his funny and insightful reactions to the news. And he's not just a cartoonist, he's also the creator of children's books and shows. Steve and I talked about his job today over Zoom. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So how does one become an editorial cartoonist? Oh, wow. Okay, we're starting from the, the very uh, the beginning, the ground floor. We're going back. Yep. Okay. I guess there's a bunch of different ways. Usually it helps by being a, uh, a good artist or good at uh, drawing. You know, that, that seems to kind of be the common denominator when you talk to cartoonists. And then uh, I, I think you, you really have to have an interest in the news and current events. And I really think it, it helps to, to love culture too. You know, movies, books, theater. Um, I was I was a weird kid. I I, I don't consider myself a, like a, you know an intellectual, but I've always kind of uh, gravitated towards sophisticated culture stuff. You know, so like I could tell you who George Gershwin was when I was a kid. You know, and I, I and I knew or had a pretty good understanding of the plays of Shakespeare. You know, I didn't know them all by heart, but I just kind of, I was familiar with them all, you know? And I, I loved New Yorker cartoons when I was in junior high. And so I think that I, I just kind of have a natural um, gift or not, a gift is the wrong word. I guess it's just kind of a natural gravitation towards uh, the arts and culture. And so anyway, so my point in, in, in saying all that is it's helped me over the years because I incorporate all that stuff into my cartoons. Can we talk about your creative process? I, I just wonder, like, yeah. how do you come up with this stuff? And especially because you do have to come up yeah. with so many ideas. Yeah, well, again, getting back to how we're created and how we're made, I think our brains are a little warped, maybe. I think it's a combination of our brains are warped as cartoonists, so we see the world in a different way. And, and then we kind of have trained our brains to meet these deadlines over the years, right? So the creative process is still mysterious, and I think a lot of creators will, will say that, you know? Because a song idea, you'll, you'll hear these great songwriters that can come to you in, in, in a dream, like Paul McCartney's Yesterday, or... Um, it can come to you when you've spent nine hours in the studio trying to force something and, and then suddenly, you know, this piano riff evolves into a song. So it's kind of like that with, with cartooning. You just don't know. Like, I'll, I'll get these ideas when I'm driving in the car and boom, it's just uh, a caption, you know, a play on words. And, and, that, and that's the cartoon. That's 90% of the cartoon. All I have to do is just kind of draw an interesting image to accompany that, that creative, clever caption. Or, um, 
you know, um, like the other day with that Trump cartoon, I knew I wanted to use Trump's own words against him. So um, uh, you've got to fight like hell or else you won't have a country anymore. That's not something you say to a bunch of people who are fired up and ready to do damage, right? Because that's going to incite them. So that's bad. And I think he was guilty of inciting those rioters. So I wanted to say that he was guilty. So I pulled out the, the, the letters G-U-I-L-T-Y from those words and kind of made them like fall off and put them on the ground. You have to see it. But um, uh, that was another approach, you know? So it, it just, it depends on, on the day and, and the topic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the creative process is, is really fun and interesting. And I love talking about it with other creative people too. Another common thing is taking breaks. I notice a lot of people I talk to say, if you can't come up with something, take a break, come back to it. That works for me too. Um, exercise. The days I exercise, I think my, my blood is flowing and my brain is working. Mm -hmm. I seem to come up with, with better cartoons on those days. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your secrets with yeah, us. I think yeah. that I'm going to be a better cartoonist for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being so long-winded. You're going to have to edit these. <laughs> no, no, this is, this is really great. Um, well, you know, another thing that you do, so you're, you're, you're drawing these commentaries on the news, but you're also, we do a caption contest every week. And I always enjoy seeing those because they're just so off the wall. So is that yeah. different? You know, so like, in, in one hand, you're, you're, you're constantly, yeah, commenting on the news, but then like, how do you come up with a caption contest? Right. Uh, thank you. Um, caption contest, incredibly fun uh, from a creative standpoint, because I don't have to be funny. That's the job of the creators or the, um, the caption writers rather. Mm -hmm. And we have so many in our readership, so many clever people who send stuff in, including young people. Um, so it's really, it's really neat to see what people are gonna come up with based on this weird drawing. With editorial cartoons, there's a pressure on you to be, to be funny and clever every day, right? With this, you just have to be silly or you just have to be um, maybe interesting is the word and that's pretty easy to do um, I guess some days I get stuck and I can't come up with things because you don't want to lead people towards a punchline you want to mm -hmm. create a piece of art that's really open to interpretation so you're using a different part of your brain than the editorial cartoon but I just find it fun because the pressure is off I don't have to be funny or clever To see Steve's work, go to SanDiegoUnionTribune.com slash opinion and click on the Steve Breen tab at the top. He's got some great work up this week, including an homage to Schoolhouse Rock that I absolutely love. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and the News Fix will be back Monday. Thanks for listening.